So, <clears throat> end of the first day of a retreat, not quite the end. <laughs> you got to stay awake another couple hours. Um, first day of retreat, which can go all kinds of ways. And tonight, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about this practice we're sharing with you and kind of why, just some simple ways of why mindfulness, why simple awareness is so powerful in freeing our hearts and minds from confusion. Not all the reasons, but pointing to kind of the background of this practice. And someone asked today about, you know, if, if we're practicing to free ourselves from suffering, isn't that just more aversion? And in a way, I mean, in a way that can kind of take us into the heart of how the Buddha taught, why he taught, why he decided to teach, which I'm sure many of you know, but it's like the heart of our dilemma. And when the, you probably know this story well, but when the Buddha first awakened, he wasn't very inclined to share, to teach, because he said, you know, people won't get it and it will be burdensome to schlep around for the rest of my life and people won't get it. But um, he was moved, I'm cutting it short, but he was really <laughs> moved to compassion because he said with his omniscient eye he could, could look through the world and read people's minds and all. And he could see, it said, that really each of us, each human being at least, we just want to be happy. We all want to be happy. And in our sincere trying to be happy, we basically keep on doing the things that keep us spinning and suffering and confusion. Because we just don't understand what suffering is and what can bring happiness. We don't understand ourselves and reality accurately. And so that's what motivated him to teach. So it's true. He's teaching. He said, I teach suffering or dukkha. I don't like suffering as a translation because it's too limiting, too always unpleasant. And uh, it's not always unpleasant. But anyway, um, teaching dukkha and the end of dukkha, certainly to be happy. Uh, The highest happiness is peace. He's not saying we're doing this just for the heck of it and you're not going to feel any better. But the heart of it is that we suffer, that suffering, the confusion that we wake up from, it's not that the world changes. It's that we misunderstand ourselves, the world, reality, and in misunderstanding we do the things trying to make things better for us that just keep us spinning in confusion. It's really, you know, that's the loop that's called samsara. You know, wanting and getting and wanting and getting and just keep on spinning and spinning because we don't know how to step out of it. So when you look at the Buddha's life, when he woke up, he kept on living in a body, in the world, and the same stuff happened. The world didn't get better. People didn't, you know, all start acting filled with love, same stuff was going on. So his freedom of heart-mind had to be something different from being able to organize things the way we want them to be. But don't we keep trying to do that somehow? 
We can't even organize our own mind, right? That's what we see here. My God, that's the first insight. If you haven't done an insight retreat before, the first insight is your mind is not yours. It's not in your control. Causes and conditions come together. A thought comes. You are in charge of it. We keep on thinking we are. So anyway... So at the heart of awakening, it's not about rearranging everything. It's about seeing, recognizing, using seeing uh, as a, for cognizing. I don't necessarily mean visually seeing. I'm kind of using it as a shorthand for knowing. A moment of reality just as it is. There's a phrase one of the highest insights is called yata bhuta jnana dasana. I love this phrase. It translates as um, knowledge and vision of seeing things as they have come to be in this moment. Recognizing things as they have come to be. That is the liberating wisdom. Not somehow achieving a certain state that gets us out of this hell of being in a human body and mind. (laughs) No. It's seeing what's really so. And that has an amazing power because the Buddha is saying what what we're doing when we misunderstand, when we we misinterpret, when we uh, misperceive, We put a whole story on top of what's happening, and then that's how we react. That's how we respond. And it just takes us more and more into confusion. So the miracle of mindfulness, to borrow a phrase from Thich Nhat Hanh, the miracle of mindfulness is that it gives us the, the way to begin to... Uh, recognize, just to rest with full attention, full awareness, full presence in this one moment. And when it's this mindfulness that's not clouded by confusion, then there's an accurate recognition. And moment after moment of that changes everything. This is the definition of Vipassana meditation that we, I like from Sayadavatejaniya. He says, Vipassana meditation is experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. Right? You can hear that's what we've been saying all day. Mindfulness, experiencing the mind and body directly, not through the veil of all our ideas about what it means. And that's what I'm going to talk about the rest of the talk, because we don't even know that veil is there. We think we know what's going on. Experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment. So that's the continuity through the day, not just, oh, here's a moment of feeling tingling and then, you know, we're off for three days. It's the steadiness. With the right understanding, which I think Alexis talked about, a right view, wise view. Right's a tricky word because we immediately go into right and wrong and good and bad. But take that away. And right view meaning without seeing or being with experience, being with it just fresh, 
just recognizing whatever's occurring in this moment, how it has come to be as a result of so many different conditions that we can't see. But it's just like this, free of any overlay of our idea about what it means. And that's the tricky part, free of any overlay about what it means. This is what we're practicing. I think it's really interesting, this, um, this definition, and this is the way that we're trying to share this particular style of vipassana, that the emphasis on right view, that doesn't mean you get, because the beginning, the, the path, the eightfold path begins and ends with wise understanding, wise view. And you think, well, I can't start the path by having the end of the path already wise view. No. But we can start with some, a little bit intellectual, but a little bit practice of right understanding of just this, that whatever's occurring is not my personal responsibility. Responsibility is the wrong word. I'll get more, it's not me. It's arising due to conditions, which many of those we don't control. But when we don't see that, we take everything personally. If it's a pleasant experience, we congratulate ourselves, we did it right, and a whole story gets going, right? Then it goes away, and you're having an unpleasant experience, and you blame yourself, or you blame that noisy person next to you, you blame somebody because something went wrong. And all the different um, moods and thoughts and stories and reactions follow on that. And we don't, we're so far from just the actual moment of experience so fast this is how we don't even know that there's been this overlay put on experience. This is why we're practicing the simplicity of awareness, of mindful awareness. It's radical. Because in this term, this in wise view, right view in terms of mindfulness, we're not trying to make something happen. Even, I know, that it doesn't really compute, right? You come here, you're sitting, you're walking, you're not talking, there's all these things you're doing differently, and we're saying every moment that you're awake, remember awareness, and then we say you're not trying to make something happen, right? (laughs) We're not. We are trying to keep recognizing awareness. We're trying to shift our refuge. But it's not our MO to do that without wanting some kind of better result. And that, that's such a, a habit. Well, we talked about it already today, that it just slips in. It's so hard. Okay, I've remembered awareness a, a lot today. Where's the goodies? Yeah, when's something going to happen? I said, patience. It's only been one day. We're talking our whole life. I got news, at least just this life. Just stay with this life. But we're like, okay, something should happen, and it should be better than it was when I came. It shouldn't be worse, right? It just slips in there. And it just seems so normal. We don't even recognize it. So it's not our MO. Just to try to be with what is without any so that, without any uh, reference really to what's it going to do in the future and what did it do yesterday. Just, it's just like this now. It's just like this now. Now in the moments of that, 
which I am sure many of you have had today, if you recognize that moment, it's really quite peaceful because the mind's not making a big hullabaloo about whatever's happening, good, bad, or indifferent. You're just hearing a bird, not, oh, the bird, not, oh, the black fly, just hearing, hearing, and nothing around it. That's peace. That's not the idea we're thinking about when the Buddha looked around and said, we want to be happy. We're not thinking, I want to just hear and nothing should be created around it. That's my idea of real happiness. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not, probably not in the beginning of practice. So it's, it's, it's radical, this learning how to just be with what's happening and then we start to recognize the views that overlay, the ideas that we overlay. And this is where it gets really interesting. Interesting. Because we're not here to say to stop those views. We don't even know what they are. But as we start to recognize just moment-to-moment awareness, and as we've said, just one moment is simple, is not exhausting. That's all. Just one moment. You don't have to project it into the future. The more steady it becomes the more that awareness mind, it's not personal, we start to, starts to recognize the views that are overlaying because ultimately they don't really match. And it's really interesting to see. When I was, just as I said, I was on retreat this last month. And one thing I started just noticing, uh, I like to do walking meditation a lot. Uh, I'd be walking and just you know, watching what's going on in the mind, seeing, hearing, noticing the thoughts and the moods. And I could, would see how it would always keep slipping in some, oh, I just should get a little bit better. Oh, just, what does this mean? And then I said, oh yeah, I would start analyzing, you know, some Buddhist philosophy thing and looking at Vedana and looking at clinging and all, but forcing it out of some wanting to understand. And then it, it, this, this line kept coming to me, which is, Just let reality reveal itself. Quit looking so hard. Just moment to moment, let reality reveal itself and tell its own story. Quit making up a story and putting it on top of it. You know? So this is where we start to see how the belief we have, the view we're holding in the back of our mind about experience that we don't recognize, how that affects how we react or respond and the moods and the beliefs, and it can take us way down the road. So this is an example I've been using the last couple of years. It's a very simple one of um, a young child. I have a, a young nephew. So watching, you know, how, how kids learn things. So, you know, he's two or three, and this is very simple. But you know those, those games where you have a, a box and wooden blocks of different shapes, triangle, circle, square, and they learn how to put the right block in the right shape. And so before he knows that, and, and you know, the adult will show, and to him it works, you put it in and it just goes in. He tries it, it doesn't work, right? Because he's putting the circle in the square and the square in the triangle and it doesn't work. And you can see, I mean, I could see how he, didn't, he doesn't just go, oh, it doesn't work. It's like, 
They could do it and I can't. What's the matter in frustration and anger and whatever, you know, in the little mind, you know, if it was an adult, there might be either self-blame or blaming the adults or keeping a secret and not telling you how to really do it or why this is a broken game or this stinks anyway, throw the whole thing out the window, let's go outside. You know, all of that gets going, right? And it can, it can build up, even with a little kid, it can build up into a whole tantrum. You keep on doing it, and then suddenly, maybe by mistake, the right block goes in, the right thing. But then when suddenly they see, when he suddenly sees the shape, it's like the ignorance, the, the cloud of confusion in the mind went away at that point. And, the right, and, and then they see, oh, every time, that's just how it is. All that other stuff, the anger, the blame, the wanting, you don't have to talk yourself out of it. It's gone. It goes away because it doesn't make any sense. As soon as the realities recognize the way it is, oh, okay, you put the blocks in here. And if I want the square to go in the triangle, it's not going to work. And that's just how it is. There's no blame. There's no suffering. There's a, just, that's just it. That's the difference between yata bhuta and yata dasana, recognizing things as they have come to be in this moment, or when we put the overlay. If I could really do this right, I would get this block in here no matter what. There's something wrong. That's simple. But you see, that really is a, I like that, because it's like a metaphor for the whole thing. But the overlays, the views that might be in the back of our mind, could be a lot more complicated. And so we can get caught in a lot of aversive or wanting reactions and stories about ourselves and others and what this means without actually, without mindfulness, not being colored by the aversion, the clinging, can't recognize accurately. We can't recognize accurately when that's going on in the mind. So there's many different ways, many different views, of course, that can be held in the back of the mind as we go through practice. But the most pervasive one, and Alexis touched on it, I'm just going to touch on it, but just play with noticing it, not try to think your way out of it. But the most pervasive view, kind of at the heart of the Buddhist teaching, is this, this overlay, this interpretation on so much of our experience of taking it personally. It's me or it's mine. I mean, that just feels true, doesn't it? And that's the thing with the view. It's not like we're thinking, oh, look, now I am putting on the overlay of self to this uh, sitting that was so terrible and I just couldn't even focus and thoughts were coming all the time and I remember my last retreat, it was better and now it's not and what am I doing wrong? At times you can see, oh, that's an overlay of self, taking it personally. But more often we're really caught up in, well, what is wrong? If I could do it right, I wouldn't be thinking. If I could do it right, I wouldn't lose awareness. If I could do it, you know, and so as long as there's that taking it personally, kind of clinging to the particular idea, the experience, there, that, that clinging, that aversion, that's distorting the awareness, the mindfulness, the consciousness that's meeting the experience, and we can't recognize it accurately. The Buddha even said, um, in one place, he said, this nibbana, this freedom, is visible here and now. And someone said, to what extent is it visible here and now? 
And he said, to the extent that greed, hatred or fear, negativity and confusion are not present in the consciousness, in the mind. I say that they're not present, they're not distorting, they're not caught. And this is a moment-to-moment thing. So in a moment when you may feel you're quite aware, but it's filled with resistance to what's happening and not recognizing that resistance, there's not going to be accurate recognition of what's happening. So, for example, it's like that noise is the source of my suffering. And that just seems clear when we're caught up in that. That unpleasant noise and that person shouldn't be making it or they shouldn't be running the lawnmower during a sitting or whatever is clearly the source of my suffering. Or there's a really pleasant experience. You're feeling really light and happy and good. You think, oh, that's clearly the source of my happiness. And so this happy, pleasant experience should definitely be strung out, made to happen again, made to last long. And getting into a clinging, a wanting, a holding on to something that cannot last. Because we all know intellectually, but that doesn't really get down in the gut. Nothing, nothing, nothing lasts. No state of mind, no thought, no mood, no sensation in the body, no experience in the world, nothing lasts. Some things seem to last longer than others. But the sense of thinking, this unpleasant experience is my suffering, this pleasant one is my happiness, that's where we get caught. That's where greed and resistance, confusion, are coming into the mind, into the awareness, and we're not recognizing accurately. So, for example, and this is the power of moment-to-moment mindfulness. The sound. Sounds, I find, are more easy. When we really can just, in a moment, just this is awareness of hearing, and you can just go, oh, no, no, that sound, and that's just feeling the hearing, and then notice the thoughts arising, the aversion with the thoughts, the sense of self-blame or other blame, and the whole story that's going on, we see, oh, that's the suffering. The sound is just a sound. As Ajahn Chah, who is a great Thai uh, forest monk meditation teacher, said, you know, the sound isn't bothering you. Just leave it at the ear door. You're going out and bothering the sound. It's kind of like that. So this is just a little shorthand, but this is what we keep exploring. But these are the qualities that block accurate recognition that block right view in a particular moment. For me, the most, I don't mean to say the most, one of the most freeing, um, I'd say realities of how our mind and body works that really supports me, that inspires me, that gives me the trust and the energy to keep on looking at all this stuff is the fact that our mind is arising and changing moment to moment to moment. And by mind, I mean mind and heart. Chitta is the word in, in, in Pali, which means all our mental activity. I'm not trying to make this, this kind of split we can get into here with thinking mind and emotions. I mean, all mental activity. It arises, conditions come together, physical, mental, inner, outer, and there may be sadness arising. 
fine, that's what's happening. It's going to last a while and it's going to change. So there'll be a moment when maybe there's resistance to the sadness, not recognizing, and there's a real sense of struggle. But then there's a moment, oh, resistance is like this. The awareness is recognizing resistance. So it stops fighting resistance, and resistance is just the next arising experience. The whole sense of struggle and me drops away. There may even still be the sadness, but the shift is from the owning it, the believing it, the holding on to it, the resisting it, to really think of it like a qigong or a tai chi shift from, this is me, this is me, I like it, I don't like it, this is, oh, it's like this now. It's like a shift into the awareness, taking refuge, just for a moment, resting in the awareness. And that's the thing, everything's only a moment. So all caught up and not having awareness and really identified with greed and then suddenly there's a seeing through it. There's a moment of purity of heart-mind where there is right view, wise view. It's not like it's all distorted, it's all greed, hatred, and delusion, and then finally one day, boom, it's all gone. But until then, we're just dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. <laughs> like every moment is a new moment. Every moment, awareness can be accessible. And it doesn't matter what the awareness is noticing. I say a lot, awareness doesn't care what's arising. It's equal with anything. It's not like if what's arising is resistance, the awareness is all kind of like, oh, I don't want to be with that. It's going to get me all dirty. I only want to be aware of the nice thing. I mean, our identification says that. <laughs> awareness doesn't care. Or as someone else said to me, no, you should say it cares equally. So whichever fits your personality pattern, you can go with. Mine is it doesn't care. So well, it cares equally. Anyway, awareness is just pure. It's just clear. Whatever's arising is the perfect gateway to re-recognize awareness because that's what's happening now. And there's always a new moment. It's not like we're stuck. We don't have to be afraid. Seda Upandita, you know, is very, he was a very tough teacher, very demanding. But I found him incredibly compassionate, actually. He said to me once, I don't remember what was happening in my practice, but he just said so kindly, he goes, you know, you don't need to be afraid of anything that comes up. And when, when we start to and begin to and continue to, to trust the sense of awareness, the sense, even the most difficult stuff, when we can touch it with awareness rather than identification, it really, really shifts things. It really, and I'm speaking from, you know, personal experience at times, it really, it's like, it's completely different from being all cut up, oh, look at that, the body's doing that, and these are the conditions of the body, and then it's like it moves from resistance to compassion automatically. That's one of the beautiful things, actually, of... Um, moments when the awareness, when the mindfulness is not distorted by the habits of greed or aversion or just confusion, that the, then the wholesome, beautiful qualities of response reaction arise naturally. So when there's not greed or aversion, if you just happen to, say, talk about the body's hurting and just awareness notices it, instead of, oh, no, the stupid, oh, poor body. What can I do to help it? So if you're, you're sitting here, for example, 
and there starts to be some pain in the knee. And the first reaction, when there's a sense of the way the sense of, um, let me back up a minute, the way the sense of taking it personally can work, it's really fun to explore as you go through the practice here. Really, don't take taking it personal, personal. <laughs> this is just what our minds do. So, you know, if you're going to get like uh, disgusted or overwhelmed by it, that's not helpful. But the whole attitude we're bringing in with this awareness practice is, wow, that's interesting. Look how the mind works. So one way, I think Alexis mentioned that one of the ways the Buddha described our moment-to-moment experience, and which I also find very helpful in, in terms of exploring when we're on a retreat like this, is you know, through six sense experiences, right? He mentioned that. If you go through the day, you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the whole mental world, and that one, yeah, that seems to take an inordinate amount of space. But that's just arising too. Thoughts, moods, emotions, those, those things are just occurring over and over and over and over and over, seeing, smelling, hearing. A lot of the times we don't notice quite, you know, what's happening. But many, many, many... Um, moments of sense contact all day. That's what's going on. There are many kind of short little ones that happen that maybe you don't notice at all. Or maybe we do notice, but they're no big whoop, no big thing. You know, you're walking, maybe feeling the sensation of the foot on the floor, but not making anything of it. And, you know, you hear a sound or whatever. But then there are other perceptions, a thought, a sound you like or you don't like, a smell of the food at lunchtime and you're hungry, a memory that comes up and you're off into a whole world of your whole past life, you know, that goes along with that memory, that kind of thing, right? So certain of the sixth sense come and it's either the attention really gloms into it. It's me or it's mine. It's like I think of it as that somehow the, the mind, the consciousness privileges certain sense experiences, certain perceptions as me or mine and immediately goes into them and hangs on tight. Well, we don't quite, until awareness starts to get momentum, we don't quite notice that's what's happening. We're just walking along and suddenly we're like, oh no, I remember when I was doing that thing in the third grade and it just shows that horrible aspect of my personality and it's coming up now in the way I'm looking at people when they walk by and I walk in the hall and oh, you know, and it all seems so real and so true and so unpleasant. Although it could be completely different in five minutes, right? You have a whole different memory about how great you are and what you're going to do and how you're going to change and what wonderful things you're going to do when you leave here and on and on and on. And we don't notice a thought came up that was pleasant. Oh, that's me. Or a sound came up that was unpleasant and there's immediate aversion. and Oh, that's me. And the sense that we can control, as I said, we take credit or we take blame or we congratulate yourself or we react like my nephew. You know, we react with how can we fix it? How can we keep it? What, how can we hide this so people don't see how horrible we are? You know, whatever it is, we get into a whole story and the, the wanting and the resistance and the sense of me, me, me just keep growing and growing and growing. And then it's gone. 
and you're just walking, but we don't maybe notice that it's gone. So this is a really, really interesting practice, just to see this is the habit of our mind. When we see it, great. We can see how it works. We can see how it can put on this overlay, how everything gets so much more complicated and suffering. We can see how when it goes away, there's just hearing, there's just seeing, and things are just simple as they are. Exploring this is a huge part of our practice. We start to see that what's occurring is arising due to all the conditions that came together in this moment. Not because I decided now I'm going to get really concentrated. <laughs> Tejaniya said once, and it's like, oh yeah, right, why didn't I think of that before? He said, you know, when you're getting concentrated in, in, in meditation, it's a, it's a result of a lot of certain conditions. You can learn what the conditions are. Wanting to be concentrated is not one of them. <laughs> and when we're wanting, kind of just picking that because it's very up when people are on retreat, wanting to be concentrated completely blocks seeing what the conditions are. You can't just look and see. So when uh, this, this uh, Tibetan Lama friend of mine knows, he said, I like Lama dreaming, he said, you know, when all these different experiences are coming or going and we're just part of nature. It's just nature. There's sounds and smells and tastes and physical sensations and we're here. We think of we're this body in nature, but you know, there's really no separation. We're all just part of nature. But when a particular experience, you know, we solidify around a particular experience, we do that all the time, feels like me. He says that then we're like locked into what he called the narrow bandwidth of being a separate human being, separate from all of nature. And that's what we do a lot. We can't think our way out of this, which is our MO. Don't even try. But this is an invitation to trust the present moment mindfulness. That's what's so amazing about something that seems so simple. Talking about, this is called Sakaya Ditti, personality view, identity view. Buddha talked about it a lot. It's really one of the core confusions that keeps us spinning, not recognizing accurately. And we used to think, you know, you don't talk about that in the beginning of a retreat because it's, it's too subtle and people think about it too much and get too confused. But it's at the core of our misperception of our suffering. And something Ajahn Sumedho, you know who Ajahn Sumedho is? He's an American man who's been a monk in the Thai forest tradition for 40, 50 years. I've found him quite inspiring, the way that he talks and talks about practice. Anyway, he said, you know, he used to think, and people would think you have to practice for a long time before you can even start to talk about or explore Sakaya Ditti, personality view. But then he said, but then I thought, why practice for 20 years with the wrong understanding? Why practice for 20 years out of the delusion that I'm practicing to achieve something, to get somewhere? You know, so start looking now. We're practicing to be fully present with things as they are in this moment. And that's what frees our heart and mind from greed, hatred, and confusion. It's amazing. So all this practice we're doing 
isn't to get somewhere else. It's just to retrain the habits of our mind to land here. It's like this now. It's like this now. That Tai Chi move. It's so powerful. You can see how immediately the personality view springs up and we're the, we're the center of everything. Just a funny story Joseph Goldstein tells a lot you know, on himself, but it's good. How he was um, on retreat, I guess, here. And in the food line for lunch, like today, long, long line, everyone's there. And he was, I think, the second one in line. And so the first person in line took, I guess, the big pot had the lid on it. So they took the lid off and dropped it and it made a heck of a racket. You can imagine everyone's there and spills all over. Huge racket, everyone's looking. And Joe said his first thought, and he had to restrain himself not to actually say it was, it wasn't me. That's what we do, right? Immediately, whatever happens, it's all about me. Right there. Right. So with awareness, we see that. We laugh at it. Wow, look what the mind's doing. Even that isn't personal when we can see it. There's nothing our mind can do that need be outside of awareness. We start to learn to trust it. Laughing helps. Wow, look at that. And in that minute, it wasn't me. It was awareness noticing. It really shifts. So in the moment of simple mindfulness, the whole concoction falls apart for that moment. It's like the Buddha talked about consciousness as a magic show. It puts everything together. It seems so real. But if you look behind the scenes of a magic show and you see how the tricks are done, it loses its interest. This is like the concoction of self, you know? So this is just... Don't even try to see through that, but just... I'm saying all of this just to try and support our our willingness, our interest, to whatever's happening, see if we can just re-recognize awareness. It's like this now. I feel completely confused. It's like this now. And the more and more we trust it, you know, it really comes to be... Uh, somehow, I think, some of the awareness becomes more... It could be joyful, it could be peaceful, it's interesting, it's, it becomes a refuge more than needing to have every experience confirm us or tell a story about us or explain what it means about us. It's like the awareness really becomes the refuge. Recently, a few months ago, I was visiting a friend, a person uh, who's in their early 90s now, very inspiring person. This is a person who has lived a very rich, full, and varied life and is um, a, a long time, very deep practitioner of this practice, very wise person. And you know, being 90, their body's frail. They're living in a, you know, a, a retirement place. So, you know, just yeah, pleasant, but a, a small apartment. Can't get out much, can't do much. And this person was saying, and if this is a very sincere person, would, that this is the most interesting time of my life. And I said, really, why? And I said, well, like, if I'm just walking across the room here to the teapot, that's totally my life. That's everything. That's what I'm doing. I'm just walking across the room. It's everything in that moment. If I'm pouring the water for the tea, that's everything. That's my whole life, you know. The person's not like referring to something in the past, looking to the future. Total presence. 
It's just, it's so alive, so present. Everything is so interesting. And it was so inspiring to me. This sense, really, this person's living in the sense that it's not about the object. It's not about the activity. It's that really living, the wakefulness, the purity of the, the, the heart-mind at that moment. Purity meaning just really being present with what is, without adding anything extra. That's uh, the most interesting time of their life. That's you know, when our life is in that moment. It's complete. That's what we're practicing. See, from that, response is possible. It's not like you know, we become some kind of a zombie. From that moment of pure presence, if there's some action that needs to be happened, wisdom sees, wisdom knows what to do. It's obvious. One teacher called it doing the obvious. It's just a knowing. It's not even me. It's wisdom that knows because there's clear seeing. So that's really what we're doing here. And that's why we talk about the third aspect, the simplicity and honesty of mindfulness with right view. And we notice when it's not right view because there's struggle, there's tension. Then we notice, well, what's going on? Wanting, aversion, oh, look at that. The third, the continuity or the simple perseverance. This whenever we forget, the next moment we remember, here we are again. It's why every moment, Every moment is Dhamma. Every moment is a moment of, of the truth of reality can reveal itself in this moment. Reality isn't more real when it's a pleasant moment. Reality isn't more real when what we want to happen happens. Or it isn't more real when what we don't want to happen happens. It doesn't matter what's happening now. And so the, the, the willingness to meet any moment of the day, to treat all moments as equally valid. That doesn't mean you're not going to forget a million times. It's not a holding on. It's like this perseverance, this willingness to wake up no matter what the activity. All day. This is what we're practicing here. So these eight days, it really isn't about in a short time we've got to push and get to some particular state. It's about, and I was thinking the same thing in this last month I was sitting, it's a time to have the conditions where we can really just practice recognizing awareness, whatever's happening. So whether we're in our daily activities, whether we're doing formal walking meditation, whether we're in the movement session, whether we're doing our our work meditation, whether we're lying down, whether we're in the sitting, there's really not a hierarchy. It's not like sitting's better and you go in your room and check out. It's not like sitting is worse. It's whatever's going on. And that's one of the reasons, actually, that starting to, this afternoon tomorrow, why we don't have such a rigid timetable for the sitting and the walking. Because it means rather, that means we're noticing what's going on in the mind. When instead of just sitting until the bell rings, which can be fine, but maybe you're sitting and after 30 minutes, as I talked today, you're just lost in aversion and you're just sitting, you know, oh my God, I sit till the bell rings. And you're just feeding aversion because you're not recognizing it. When, if you could recognize in your mind, let me stand up, refresh the awareness, go do some walking, and the awareness comes back in a more balanced way, you actually can find you're more continuous, I've found this myself, when you're in your own rhythm. 
And you're paying attention. What's going on in the mind? You don't just walk because the bell rings. You don't just stop walking because the bell rings. You don't say, well, now there's no bell. I'm going in my room and space out. It's like whatever's going on, you, you, you watch what you're doing and why you do it. And that's what's interesting. It's not setting up, I can never go to my room. I can, like Alexis was saying, if you're tired, rest. Watch why you're doing it. Not set up some, I should do this, I shouldn't do that. I mean, within the, the bounds of the precepts and not harming ourselves or others. But I'll use um, taking a nap for an example, because in, in some forms of practice, you're really pushed not to take naps and not to sleep much. And I'm a person who has a lot of tiredness. I don't have huge energy. But you can watch. Um, go to take a nap, say, on a retreat. And the first time, the, the mind's really dull and tired. The body's tired. You can see you're trying to sit and you're just falling asleep. And it's not aversion. You don't, it's not aversion. I really need to sleep. This will help refresh. And you go and take a nap. You wake up. You can see the energy's a bit refreshed. It was helpful. You start walking. And it's like, oh, that was helpful. The next day, it's a little, I'm not quite sure, maybe it'll be good though, let me try it. And you're watching the mind that's trying to repeat what happened the day before. And you can't really tell, do I need the rest or not? So you just watch that, you rest or you don't rest, whichever you do, and you keep noticing. So say you rest, you wake up, oh, it was okay, I feel all right, it's all right. The next day, you're not really tired, you're just sick of sitting and walking. So you think, <laughs> but maybe I'd go take a nap. And, But here, see, we're not trying to fool ourselves. You're not saying you can't take a nap, but you're watching what's going on in the mind. So you watch, you go take a nap, but you're really seeing. It's it's wanting, it's aversion to what's going on. It's just, I just want to be unconscious for a while. I'm sick of being aware. And you take the nap and you wake up and, you know, you're more logy, you're more out of it, you're more dull. And okay, that's interesting piece of information. That's what we're doing, exploring it all. As soon as you set up, I can't do this, and we don't look anymore, we don't learn. Or we do the thing we think we shouldn't do. I'm not having seconds. I've had enough to eat. I'm not going back for seconds. And the next thing you know, you're going back for seconds. So don't turn off the awareness. We do that a lot. I'm doing the bad thing, so I'm not going to be aware of it, because that makes me feel worse. No. Bring your awareness along with you. Pile that plate with food and notice the greed. (laughs) Shovel that food down and notice how it feels. Notice the self-disgust. Notice the whole thing. Because none of it's personal. (laughs) And this is really where we're learning. And it really gets interesting. And that shoveling the food down was as valid a moment as a, a moment in a sitting where the breath is really refined and subtle and there's light and blah, blah, blah. It's the awareness. That's what we're cultivating. So, to end with two quotations, one from Tejaniya. As mindfulness is remembered more and more frequently, it gradually develops its own momentum. We come to appreciate moments of awareness more than we uh, get lost in our entrancements with the reactions of mind and whatever's arising. That's really it. We learn to appreciate awareness more than we're entranced with our reactions. But this is a natural occurrence. Sayada Upandita. 
when mindfulness is persistently and repeatedly activated, wisdom arises. This is the natural effect of the momentum of mindfulness. We don't create wisdom. It naturally arises through steady, accurate recognition. It's amazing. It's not an act of will. It happens naturally. There will, this is back to Upandita. There will be insight into the true nature of body and mind. This is really a natural law. This is the Dhamma. So just this moment, remember awareness. That's our practice. So thank you for your kind attention. We just like to sit quietly for a moment or so after the talk. Thank you. So, thank you. And there's a time for walking now, or standing, or sitting if you want. And there's our last sitting together. It won't be 45 minutes. (laughs) So if you come, it'll be much shorter than that, if you have energy. Thank you.